0: It's why I think it's so important to be pushing those boundaries back because people, even if they can't put their finger on it, they react to the fact that something is, is fresh and new and different. And so it's something that, you know, I think is really critical to be constantly trying to innovate in your photography.
1: Alex Mustard there, one of the elite underwater photographers in the world, on the importance of innovation in photography. Alex pours all of his knowledge and expertise into our chat, and I'm really privileged to have him on the show today. Well, my name's Graham Dargie. I'm a professional photographer and roller skating rookie from Aberdeen, Scotland. And this is the Viewfinders Photography Podcast, where I talk with the best photographers on earth. And today, one of the best under the sea. Thanks for checking in today. I hope you're keeping well. Uh, things are pretty good here. We had a few days away as a family last week to Inverness, which was a welcome break. And uh, the time we spent up there in the area around Loch Ness And the drive back home through Spaceside Whiskey Country as it's known past all these amazing distilleries through this wonderful scenery really reminded me of what an incredibly beautiful place Scotland really is just wanted to say a quick thank you to everyone who's been checking out season three of the podcast these last couple of weeks um the first two episodes have been so well received and I'm really grateful for people tuning in from all around the world and for the great feedback that we've had. It really means a lot to me and to the guests. So thank you. Um, The rest of the season is shaping up to be really, really special. And I've got some amazing guests in the next few weeks, as well as some brilliant live events coming up. So I hope you can stick around for those. Okay, speaking of live events, segue. uh, A quick shout out for my next Viewfinders live event. That's Food Photography with Donna Krauss, sponsored by MPP, Coming up on Sunday, the 13th of June, 2021. Donna Krauss is a Nikon ambassador and a light master of light and one of the most sought after food photographers in the UK. Donna's fantastic, one of the smartest, most creative people I've met in photography and one of the best at what she does. So join us on Zoom to learn how Donna creates her amazing food photographs, including styling, camera settings, lighting and more. If you're into food photography, still life photography Or if you just want to expand your photography knowledge and hang out with some like minded photography enthusiasts, then come along. That's Sunday, the 13th of June 2021, 7.30pm UK time on Zoom. Tickets are available for just £12 at the Viewfinders website. That's viewfinderslive.com and the link is in the show notes. Don't miss it. Um, The event is sponsored by MPB, who are also sponsoring the podcast this season. If you've got something in your photography bag you're not using and don't we all, Then trade it to MPB to get something you will use or just get some money in your pocket. MPB makes selling your kit easy and everything you buy comes with a six month warranty. So go check out their website and follow them on Instagram. Links are in the show notes. As always, you can catch me on Instagram at Viewfinders Podcast. You can also check out the new viewfinders website viewfinderslive.com where you'll find everything to do with the show, including previous episodes and upcoming live events. Right, my guest today is Dr. Alexander Mustard, MBE, better known as Alex Mustard, who's been taking underwater photographs since he was just nine years old, and he's worked as a full-time underwater photographer since 2004. Alex has a PhD in marine ecology, and his combination of subject matter expertise, underwater photography experience, technical innovation, and sheer passion makes him one of the absolute best in the world at what he does. Alex Photography has won many awards, including European Wildlife Photographer of the Year in 2013, four category wins in the British Wildlife Photography Awards, and the ADEX Award for Extraordinary Contribution to Underwater Photography in 2016. In 2018, he was made an MBE for his achievements as an underwater photographer. He's written more than 500 articles for photography, marine, wildlife and diving publications as well as five books of his own including underwater photography masterclass. Alex is also the inventor of magic filters a filter system specifically for underwater photography. He's the associate editor of wetpixel.com an online community for underwater photographers and he teaches underwater photography workshops all over the world. So fair to say we're talking with an expert here today. On the other hand, I know nothing about this kind of photography, so it was fascinating for me to sit with Alex, learn and just witness his sheer enthusiasm. For me, he overflows with experience, expertise, field craft, and an incredible knowledge for the wildlife and ecosystems he photographs. Most of all, he has an infectious passion for what he does. It's a real privilege for me to have him on the show, and I hope you enjoy this as much as I did. Here's my conversation with Alex Mustard. Hi Alex, thanks for coming on. How's things?
0: Very good, thanks. Yeah, yeah, it's as good as they can be at the moment, but yeah, all pretty good.
1: <laughs> yeah, um, well, we're recording this in March, right? <laughs>
0: yeah, tail end of March.
1: <laughs> it's going out later, so who knows why, what the situation will be then? But mm. I'm really excited to talk to you because this underwater photography—it's nothing like anything I've I've done before. So uh, if I can, I can talk to a landscape photographer or a commercial photographer or a studio photographer on some kind of level, because I've, I've done those things. But um, with this, I'm I'm here to learn. So I'm really looking forward to picking your brain a bit. So uh, for people who, who may not know you, can you introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your photography?
0: Sure. Um, my name Alex Mustard. I am live, live in England. I'm an underwater photographer. And I that's usually work that takes me all around the world, predominantly shooting Natural history subjects, but I also photograph people underwater, shipwrecks and, and that sort of thing. Um, but very much usually working in the ocean. Um, I've not done any photography since late last year. Uh, we've mm-hmm. obviously had a lot of lockdowns um, across the UK, which has limited my, my ability to go out and shoot. And to be honest, um, with family commitments as well, I've been happily engrossed on my computer, processing images, writing, writing and, and also teaching online. So that's mm-hmm. kept me out of trouble. Um, a little bit about my history. I, I suppose my photography is best known to a wider audience, probably through big competitions and things like that, where my sort of weird underwater pictures get seen by a more mainstream audience. So I've had yeah. a lot of success down the years in in big competitions like the Wildlife Photographer of the Year and other competitions around. Um, I, I think um, an unusual thing that happened to me in, in my career was um, a couple of years ago I got um, proposed um, to receive an MBE from the Queen as a, as a result of my photography and, and, and what oh, I've yeah. done um, which is a very unusual thing to happen as a photographer um, mm-hmm. I think the the honours system is is an unusual system and I think that you could apply you know or you could be proposed every year of your life and then one time your lucky numbers come up so mm-hmm. I feel very lucky that 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 happened for me I have no idea still really how it happened Um, But it was an amazing experience and something I really, really appreciate. Um, I'm also well known as a teacher of underwater photography, and I wrote a book um, back in 2016 called Underwater Photography Masterclass, which has is, is become sort of the most popular book on learning underwater photography, which I, I really am grateful for. And it's a book I really put a lot of heart and love into. It's, it's a book that's designed not only to teach you how to take amazing underwater pictures, but also to, to make people really fall in love with the activity. So I'm glad it's been so well received.
1: Um, I noticed on your website um, that you seem to spend a lot of time hanging out with royalty. Uh, There's a few pictures of you doing that. So it must be nice to be moving in those circles.
0: I I think it's... um, I I used to work as a marine scientist. I did my PhD in in marine marine ecology. And, you know, used to write articles about... I used to do research and write articles, which would probably get read by 30 people in the whole world. Um, And what was amazing when I transitioned into photography is by taking pretty pictures of the sea, which I used to study... Um, it opened these incredible doors for me, and it is a reminder of how you know the population at large absolutely adores imagery and astounding, you know, original, eye-catching imagery. Just does open those doors, and yes, and it's just, you know it allows you to to infuse to to all sorts of important folks but at the same time also to be invited to the local school and tell them about the ocean and and I think that's a real privilege of being a photographer is those images do open doors and allow you to share your passions and certainly for me that's something I've really enjoyed but yeah I've had the odd odd photo call moment so it's been quite fun
1: <laughs> yeah uh, I was really keen to ask you um, because one of my recent guests was Howard Schatz who's mm-hmm. also an underwater photographer but a completely different kind and I was I was wondering how you looked at his work and if you are able to look at that and just start to read it, you know, from a photography point of view as in what he's done or if you heard what he was saying and you could relate to some of it. Um, I just wondered what your response was to Howard Schatz's work.
0: Uh, well, I, I mean, I've known his work really through all my career. Um, mm-hmm. I, th- I think the first thing I would say about underwater photography is that Underwater photography is often seen by the rest of photography as a very niche discipline. But in reality, underwater photography is a very diverse discipline. There's, you know, everything from people who specialize in in shooting, you know, great, great whales, you know, the biggest, the biggest wildlife on the ocean to people who specialize in photographing absolutely tiny animals underwater, people who photograph people underwater, activities underwater. And then people like Howard, who create amazing visions working in controlled environments. Mm. So, you know, it is a you know, it's, it's everything from portraiture to landscape photography to architectural photography. To natural history photography all all happen in underwater photography so it's a very for me it 's a very diverse discipline um, specifically on on howard chats his work I have adored through all my adult life and certainly all my underwater photography career mm-hmm. um, and i kind of I think of him as as like a a, a great chef because he works he, he can take very simple ingredients and create the most amazing meal. You know, it's like mm-hmm. if I go to my cupboard in the kitchen, you know, on a, like a Friday night and there's no food left and there's two tins of something old in there, <laughs> I end up with a horrible meal and Howard chats, <laughs> you, you give to him a model, some water and a bit of lighting and he can create so many different dishes from those mm. simple ingredients and just the creativity of the man and the vision. Um, I, yeah. So he, he's, a, I think a fantastic example but as a fan of photography, I, I love to, to look at the work of all sorts of photographers, because I think, you know, you, you can garner inspiration and ideas from all of them. But but Howard has always been a, an ideas guy for me. I mean, it's just, it's just a fantastic, um, fantastic example to all of
1: us. Yeah, I, I just think he's a genius. Uh, so looking through your website when I was preparing for this, um, particularly the portfolio section of the website, mm-hmm. It's just so strong and so many extraordinary images, one after the other. And I'm, I'm reading the images from a photographer's point of view and a commercial photographer's point of view, probably, where I'm always troubleshooting things and thinking, how do you do that? What lens were you using? What's the lighting doing? How do you get yourself in position for that? And I, th- I thought, you know, to be just in the right place at the right time. So you've got um, challenges to overcome, you've got camera settings, lighting diving expertise, which must take years and years to accumulate. And to be just in the right place at the right time, I can imagine you probably just have to have a really good understanding of the wildlife behaviour. So I I figured, again, uneducated point of view here, there's just a lot of balls in the air. And I thought it's really impressive to have so many strong images with all those things to manage at the same time. So I'm really interested to unpack some of the specific shots with you. But mm-hmm. first of all, I'm, I'm really always interested in people's timeline. So said on your website that you started shooting underwater photos when you were nine. And uh, I, I thought that's not what most nine-year-old kids are doing. So how did you get into underwater photography at such a young age?
0: Um, well, I was always fascinated by marine life, underwater life, you know, from, from a child. My mum has a picture of me on a shelf in, 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 the, in her house of me reading a, a book full of fish and I'm like two years old. So it was always mm. a passion of mine. And then growing up, whenever we went to a beach holiday and the water wasn't completely freezing, um, I would spend all day in the water just snorkelling, exploring, you know, in single figures. And the family joke was we'd come back from holiday and my back and the back of my legs would be brown and the front of me Mm. would be completely white because I was head down (laughs) in the water all day. And none of the rest of my family really shared that enthusiasm for the underwater world at all. And so with a passion for marine life and a family that didn't share that passion, I was drawn to photography simply as a way for sharing what I was seeing. And, you know, I had this great passion. I would you know, come out the water going, I've seen this, I've seen that, I've seen the other. Mm. And that led me to want to record it. And so my, my early photography was all driven by a desire to communicate what I was seeing in the underwater world, specifically to my, my family. And my in early days of underwater photography, I never expected to be a good photographer. I just simply wanted to be passable. It mm-hmm. was very much a tool for that. But I guess starting so young and carrying on for such a long time, I slowly basically made every mistake that was possible to make. Mm-hmm. And by the time I was in my late teens, I really you know had ex- built up really quite a lot of experience and sort of knew what I was doing. And that kind of changed my approach to photography i started to enter some competitions i remember winning the the young amateur photographer magazine um competition and going to their london hq and that was a very exciting day out mm. and i actually you know met some people that day who i still know to this day it's kind of quite a strange thing you'd think you'd meet people and you know everyone would have moved on and things so um mm. anyway um and, and then sort of slowly you know, began to have more success in specific underwater photography competitions. And by the time I, I finished my PhD in marine biology in my sort of um, early 20s, mid 20s, um, and began to earn some money working in, in research, um, I was then able to start to, to dive and photograph more widely. And really build up a a very strong portfolio because I already had the photo skills, so that's mm. what kind of really sort of got me up to to that level. But through all that period, I was very proudly an amateur photographer, very proud that I wasn't trying to earn money from it, and it was very much a, you know, an artistic, a creative, a communication endeavor that mm. that, that really drew me in. And then in my late twenties, when I, in fact when I was twenty nine, I decided at that time I, I was single. I didn't have any children. And I thought, if I'm ever going to try this photography thing as a career, I should do it now when it, it seems that I won't be affecting anyone else too much. I'd mm. kind of paid off student debts by then and things like that. And I was sort of, let's give this a go. And if after 18 months it's not working, I'll go back to a more sensible career. And, and thankfully, over, although those first few years were, were, were tough, there were signs that it would work. And and then once I sort of been at it three or four years by sort of my mid 30s, um, I was sort of pretty, you know, you know pretty stable within mm-hmm. in knowing how it would work. And then like any any career, particularly these days, you know, that ability to be flexible, you know. So I think any, you know, no business has the same business model now that we did 10 years ago. Yeah. And I've always sort of been looking for areas that I can adapt that the business and I, I very much treat I think that's a you know people often ask me about oh how do you go pro you know in, in photography and I always remind people that the pro is is the the pro in profit you know you need to find a way of operating that doesn't yeah. just earn you money but actually it keeps you in the in the black you know you're you're, yeah. you're you're having more money coming in than it's going out and you're using your photographic talents your experience and knowledge to do that um, mm-hmm. so so that's kind of how I've weaved my career together
1: yeah, and so those early couple of years, what did that look like? I know we can know things have changed, but what was it like when you started out in terms of the business?
0: Um, it was it was tough. I mean, I, I was coming out of a, a science career, so I was working in a university. And as a, as a junior sort of science, scientist, you don't get paid loads of money by universities. So I set myself the, the challenge that up by, within 18 months, I had to be earning the same as a business that I was getting as a salary um, for, uh, from the company and that was the goal I set okay. myself and it had to be not just one month it had to be every month I had to be getting you know to, to that level and um, I, I decided a year before finishing my university contract I actually told my boss I want to finish this contract but I don't want to renew I don't want to stay in the university. I want to give this a go. And I said, but please don't tell everyone else in the department yet because otherwise, you know, everyone would just cut me out of every bit of work and, you know, and yeah. my, my career would grind to a halt. Um, <laughs> but I said, you know, I, I want to do this at the end of the year. So, um, but I, I spent that year building up a bit of money, building up contacts, building up plans. You know, it's 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 easier to say, oh, this time next year, can I do this job for you? Than saying, I really need money. Can you pay me now? So I, yeah. I managed to get a few things set up. Um, and that then left me in a pretty good place. But I learned a lot of hard lessons. And, you know, just like in my photography, you know, photography education, I think I probably made just about every mistake that's possible to make in those yeah. early years. But also, you know, had had bits of luck, had fortunately some good competition successes around that time that really gave me opportunities. Um, mm. And specifically, I mean, you know, definitely, you know, um, I actually, I listened to, to your interview with Howard Schatz, because um, I'm, you know, a big fan of, of his work, and he made a, a fantastic analogy about, you know, how, you know, each sort of bit of competition success, each gallery exhibition, each, you know, big published article is another brick in your in your castle, but mm-hmm. it's also always falling down. And I think during that period, I had a lot of bricks come together, and it mm-hmm. just got me up and running really nicely, and. A piece of of, of 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 sort of serendipity about that time is it just so happened completely through luck that around that time the the world of photography was switching from film to digital, and in underwater photography that was a massive game changer because mm. you, you you know it sounds really prosaic but you can't change film underwater so for <laughs> years underwater photographers were limited to thirty six pictures, yeah. and suddenly we weren't. Also, underwater photography is predominantly flash photography. And the challenge of using flash and particularly multiple flashes in un- in the underwater environment is a steep one because you, you're trying to control lots of light that you can't see. And mm-hmm. that light can also light up not only the subject, but loads of particles in the water that you don't want to light up. Mm-hmm. And that makes lighting underwater pictures difficult. The moment you could see your results as you shot them, suddenly... We could add a level of finesse just technically to underwater pictures we never could before. And it meant that pitch, you know, the very best pictures taken five years earlier were very easy to surpass. Mm-hmm. No, not the re- I would say not the really iconic work. You know, The really incredible work has remained incredible. But I would say the average good publishable solid shot was suddenly being surpassed very easily. So it was kind of a little bit of a reset on the market, the arrival of digital. And um, I was at a very good age to want to adopt all of those um, those ideas. Yeah. I mean, I have to say that the majority of my underwater photography awards um, are actually still from the film era. Um, yeah. I kind of also sort of stopped entering the specific underwater photography contests around that time. But, um, uh, you know, so I was very much a film photographer, but was, was well-placed to make that early leap to digital. And that mm-hmm. definitely made a big difference in, in getting my career up and running.
1: I've always wanted to ask someone what it's like to be in the water with a blue whale, because I, I just I've seen, you know, footage, photographs, and it, it just seems to me like it would be quite a mix of emotions to be in there. I don't want to put words in your mouth. So can you uh, talk a little bit about your experience with uh, blue whales?
0: Yes, um, blue whales, uh, it, it sounds silly to say, but blue whales are really big. And <laughs> it, it, it sounds funny because actually a lot of whales are not all that big, right. you know. They're they're a scale up from a lot of the other whales. You know, humpback whales are a big whale. The, the minke whales that we you know you see quite a bit off the west coast um, of Scotland, they're, they're 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 big whales, but they're not so huge. They're kind of you know, maybe a couple of of cars. You kind of feel like okay, it's just a big animal.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: The blue whale is sort of another scale again. Um, unfortunately, though, photographically, they're not the easiest species to work with because Mm -hmm. some whales, and I'd say particularly humpback whales, um, when they're calving in particular, the, the calves don't really swim and the mothers just float about with the calves a lot of the time and they have sort of, you know, some elaborate social behaviours that also mean that they're actually a whale that stays still a lot, which mm. means you can get in the water to them with them and spend time with them. Um, sperm whales, you know, the, um, they can be quite curious about them. So with the sperm whale, you get in the water, you get away from your boat and you hope to pique the sperm whale's curiosity and they may come over to you. Um, blue whales... They're just feeding and moving, feeding and moving, feeding and moving. So the way you, you, you get in, in them is you, you basically get ahead of them, um, go in the water, get the boat away and hope they come past you. Mm-hmm. And so you only ever get a flyby, but with the blue whale, really, they never stop. So mm-hmm. you don't get a feeling of a connection with them that you might get with some of the other whale species. But the size of them and um, is just just mind boggling. They're quite a difficult species to work with because in order to to get close to them, you need to use very small boats with very small engines because the Mm -hmm. big engines make lots of noise So you want to be as silent as possible. So we use very, very quiet engines on very lightweight boats, which means we can have to wait to really perfect sea conditions because you can't go around chasing them because you need to be able to go fast to get ahead of them because you want to be able to get in well ahead of them. And blue whales, even swimming slowly, move very quickly because they're just so big and so you're you, you're going out into the open ocean we were you know when last time I was photographing them we were you know thirty forty miles from land in a boat that's you know twelve feet long
1: mm-hmm. so
0: you you feel quite exposed out in all this, and the boats go you no know, because it's so light it, it skips along the surface of the ocean, but even with the tiny waves it's it's just it's the most juddering what right so it's a very physical thing, mm-hmm. and then the boat it gets well ahead of the the, the uh, of the whale, but it wants to keep you. You want to get the boat away from the whale, so mm-hmm. you basically jump in off a moving boat and then go down underwater and hold your breath for as long as you possibly can without you know. So, you, um but jumping off a moving boat is very physical. So it's it's a very physical activity because the moment you go in the water off a moving boat. Your body stops, but the boat keeps moving, so you get smashed up on the way in. Mm-hmm. Um, but you then go down and hold your breath for as long as you can. And hopefully, by about the time you're about to run out of air, which is you know, about maybe a minute, minute and a half later, something huge starts materializing in front of you, mm-hmm. and then you get the chance to photograph them. But very often, you run out of air and no whale appears, and you know, because you've got the line up a little bit wrong. Mm-hmm. But it's so, it's this mix of physical. you know physically very hard work which is quite unusual in underwater photography normally underwater it's very calm and and relaxed Um, it's physically very hard with incredible highs and incredible lows where you think you're about to get something amazing but Mm. something that I mean and then with just moments of of photography opportunity and that is something I think that that runs throughout all underwater photography and the blue Whale is maybe an extreme example of it is that the environment that I choose to take photos in is not one that I can survive in without special equipment. It's not one that Mm -hmm. I can spend unlimited time in. And time is a incredibly limiting factor in underwater photography. It's a, it's a, it's a, it has elements of, of sports photography where you have, you know, moments to get pictures and you don't have repeated opportunities because you're working with wild subjects in an environment where you can't spend time. Mm-hmm. So it, it suits a photographer who is decisive and is technically adept in their mm-hmm. discipline so that they can make the most of those opportunities across all underwater photography because the time is always a limitation. Um, Mm. So that's something I I both enjoy and find a frustration of it. Um, There are, of course, many advantages in underwater photography and and the fact that we are in an environment that not many people see. So the majority of what we point our camera at has a natural interest. Mm. We are free to move in three dimensions. So in the same way that, you know, sort of landscape photography has been revolutionized by, by drones, you know, just giving mm-hmm. a, an alternative viewpoint on many subjects. Yeah. We've always had that underwater. We've been free to swim above a subject, swim below a subject, swim alongside a subject a, and shoot. Um, and, and those things make it really, really interesting. Um It also throws up this whole mix of subject matter, which I think I find really enjoyable as well in that it's not a, you know, it's about multiple lenses. It's about multiple viewpoints. It's about multiple techniques, Um, but it's also united by the fact that you can't take underwater photos unless you're very close to things. And that generally means it's a, you do come away with a real connection with your subjects. You know, if you photograph If you're able to put a big telephoto lens on as a wildlife photographer and shoot animals, you know, um, you know, 50 meters away, then, you know, of course, you get to photograph them and maybe they never knew you were there. And and that's fantastic. As an underwater photographer, we have to take pictures pretty much at arm's length from everything we shoot. And that means that most of the time our subjects do know we're there, but we have to approach them in a way that means that they're totally cool with that. Now, Mm -hmm. the good side of underwater photography is that most wildlife has no fear of people. So unlike wildlife on land, you can't just walk up to a rabbit in the park and take a picture of it because it will run away. Underwater, you can swim up slowly to wildlife. And as long as you behave in the right way, you will be rewarded with a nice encounter. Mm -hmm. So the positive side of that close interaction is you come away with very rich experiences from the underwater world. Um, Mm -hmm. But you don't ever get that chance really to observe things without them knowing you're there. They just have to accept that you're there and carry on with their lives.
1: On that point of um, shooting close. So if you have something really large, like a blue whale, how close are you needing to be there to get? to be as close as you can but also get the whole animal in the frame
0: so it's i mean the answer to that question is that's the reason why we use fisheye lenses underwater as one of our main go-to lenses because we need the ability to shoot as big a subject as possible from as close as possible in order that we um that we can get as much detail and colour and and clarity on the subject. If we shoot through Mm -hmm. too much water, it all just gets lost in the murk. Um, We're able to use, you know, heavily distorting fisheye lenses because we're dealing with environments that don't have a lot of straight lines Mm -hmm. and also... With a bit of practice, you you get very used to composing pictures that hide a lot of that distortion. If it's your main go-to lens, you become very good at at putting a picture together. And I have to say, you know, you ask what the experience of shooting the blue whales is like. And I think the underwater photographer, in some ways, is the the worst person to ask. Because for me, you know, it was fa to a five hundredth and yeah. iso six hundred six forty 640 or whatever and that's where my brain was mm-hmm. um not in wow how amazing this is i mean I'm, yeah. I'm being slightly facetious but because i do believe as a you know certainly for my photography i try and live the experience too because it makes my photos better yeah. you know if I, if there's if i've had that emotional connection with the experience with the subject I'll pour that into the image making and and the image will be more memorable as a result. But I have to say, I'm also slightly detached because I'm my brain is spinning through all the other things that in the fraction of seconds that you've got when the blue whale appears to when it's gone. You know, you've got to also make sure you nail nail things technically, because that's not an opportunity that comes around very regularly.
1: Yeah, no, I totally relate to that because um, from my own wildlife experiences, mainly with safari, And um, we went with a group and there was four photographers and there was one uh, spouse. And um, I just thought that this non-photographer in the group was having the best experience because they were not experiencing it with a box in front of their face. Um, I I wasn't sure which way to go at this interview. And I was kind of wary of it just being me asking you about what it's like to photograph different sea creatures. But um, I'm going to ask you about a couple more. (laughs) I'm um, fine with that. I
0: could yeah you tried to shut me up I'm, I mean I'm pretty passionate about most things that live in the ocean so
1: yeah I was thinking with the great whites it must be a completely different experience than with the one that we've just spoken about with the blue whales um, and I saw on your website you're running a workshop uh, off of Mexico on an amazing looking boat um, I can't see that ever not being a thrill what's it like being in the water with the great white sharks
0: so I'm um, Sharks are a fantastic subject for underwater photography, but actually quite a challenging one because they are one of the few species that have a a little bit of wariness about being close to other big animals in the water and and including people. Um, Also, we've been fishing sharks at a ridiculous rate Hmm. for at least the last hundred years and we have removed a huge percentage of many of the species out of the ocean Um, and so it makes sharks really quite hard to find Um, and you really you know i I, you know end up traveling to incredibly remote places because the places that are remote um, for fishermen are also the places where the wildlife can still thrive so you know we go to some pretty pretty you know far off places to finally be able to get ourselves in front of sharks I, i photographed the majority of the the well-known species of sharks around the world and the great whites are the only ones that i choose to use a cage for um so most of the sharks we're very relaxed free swimming with them being in the water with mm-hmm. them working with local naturalists who know that particular population and have figured out a very safe way to have safe interactions with them mm-hmm. but ultimately we're trying to get within touching distance to get those good underwater photos
1: yeah. and
0: the great whites are i think partly because of the environment in which we choose to interact with them it's also technically easier to do it from inside a cage um and it makes certainly running a workshop a lot less stressful as a, <laughs> as a workshop leader <laughs> you know you know because you, know, you might not get paid if you don't bring them all back yeah. um but you know so it's um the funny thing is about the about the cage photography is when you are in the cage you do feel um, you know, very, very secure. And it allows you to really focus on the experience and focus on the photography. And I do mm-hmm. like that aspect of it. Now, you can free swim with, 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 with white sharks, and I wouldn't really have any real concerns about doing so. But the if I did that, it's very much... The photo is then of me free swimming with the shark, not the shark. Yeah. Within the cage, I feel I'm able to focus more on capturing you know, this, this incredible ocean predator mm-hmm. and the story being about him or her, as it often is or her, um, as opposed to the story being about me. And I think mm-hmm. going outside the cage, you make yourself the story, whereas mm-hmm. when you're in the cage, you can make the animal the story. So um, for that and from a safety of not losing guests point of view, yeah. um, I, I like like the cage experience. Um, cage photography is probably a little bit, you know, for a non-underwater photographer, it's probably... An area of underwater photography that's quite similar to nature photography on land, particularly like using a hide in that you go in the cage and you wait for the animals to appear. So most of the time underwater, we go underwater and we're shooting the whole time we're down there because there's amazing scenery. And even if the key species doesn't turn up, there's nearly always something interesting to take a photo of. Cage photography is very much in the cage, you know, in, in your hide um, and wait. Mm-hmm. I think one thing people we are quite surprised about when they see the cages is that the holes in the cage are usually big enough for the sharks to come in. They're more of a box that allows you to stay still and the sharks don't want to come in. But you, if you make the holes too small, there's no space to get cameras out of them. And um, it's often safer to have a cage that if the shark did put its nose in, it would end up being able to go in and through. As opposed to go in and get stuck, mm-hmm. so they usually actually think people arrive on the shark boats thinking, "Oh, great! I'm going to be in this, you know, completely protected area." Yeah. But actually, most of the cages <laughs> we use are more like a metal frame, um, so you have you've got a barrier that you can be behind. Um, but if the shark wanted to get in, it could do. But they're, they're, the, the, the sharks are not at all interested in, in in eating the people; they're interested in the bait.
1: Yeah, um, I was wondering if they even associate people as food.
0: Um. I've dived with lots of sharks around the world and I've never seen any shark, in my experience, wanting to to, um, do anything to any person in the water. Mm -hmm. Um, They do, though, learn to associate... You know, boats that feed sharks, for example, you know, to Mm -hmm. provide bait to bring them in. They definitely know when the boat turns up that that means there might be some food soon. So they they make those connections. Mm -hmm. So I think you have to be very careful. And the naturalists who run these trips need to be very careful about that association that the sharks associate the boat with this. But they don't. No one goes in the cage and starts giving food out of the cage to the shark. You you use you use food to to attract them into the area. Mm -hmm. But also certainly from my perspective we don't want to get photos of great white sharks eating bait we want to get photos of great white sharks and we just with that particular species need to use some bait to pull them into photographic range um so yeah so it's that that's kind of the motivation
1: yeah i was i would find it quite interesting on safari like a, a lion can walk right past the car often does i mean right past and i just don't think they associate you know, like they're not seeing. You can see the people in the car, but they're not seeing that there's food there. You know, mm. um, but I just wonder. I always think if you step onto the ground there, they probably would eat you because you know you're. You know what I mean? You're sort of in their territory. Um, but I just, there's. I just think they must have an, a, a a safe association with the vehicles that are. So they see them every day mm. in the safari. You know.
0: Yeah, I would say that the sharks are a little bit different in that. Um, you know The risk for any predator, you know, speaking as a biologist now, is you want to eat without risking getting injured. If, mm-hmm. if you're a herbivore and you get injured, you've got a good chance of recovering. If you're a predator and you get injured, you're dead. Right. And so all predators are very careful about hunting things and hunting in a way that minimizes their risk to themselves as well as getting the food they need to eat. And for for most sharks sharks that have any clue about us they don't know what we are we're potentially dangerous and we're not particularly nourishing and for those reasons it really makes very little sense so generally sharks you know from a biological point of view they generally the only attacks you get on people are mistaken identity Mm -hmm. you know where they think it's something else because of the conditions so it means that when you're with a shark in those environments you know, they're not they don't see you. They see you potentially maybe a, a rival for the food source. But sharks are generally pretty good at working together in that respect, um, because they, they often come together in aggregations. And they again, because they don't want to get injured, they signal to each other. So great whites, when they want to signal to each other, two great whites will swim together in parallel. Um, and mm-hmm. that way they can measure each other up against each other in terms of length and breadth and, 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 and everything to to avoid having to have a confrontation. Right. And so they're not aggressive to to each other, and they're not aggre- they're not going to hunt something that they don't know what it is, because there's a risk of injury without mm. good food re- re- reward. And we are not particularly nourishing compared to a seal or a tuna, because we mm. don't have a lot of nice muscle or we don't have a lot of nice fat. Um, so we're not, uh, you know, we're we're you know, we're mainly skin skin and bone, and that doesn't. I mean, not that the sharks know that, but they they can you know, they're well aware that we don't make a good food source. So yeah. they're not naturally trying to predate things. I think the the lion is a little bit different in that lions know what humans are. And they, have you know, historic, you know, they've been encounters with them. But for the same reason, lions as predators are unlikely to want to attack someone for those same basic mm. sort of rules of biology that as a predator, if you get injured, mm-hmm. that's, that's the end of your life. Um, and so you've got to be very careful and in the ocean animals don't have hands they can't grab something and you know or claws or something you know they they have to basically bite into things you know whether whether you're a great white shark or whether you're a tiny little you know goby living in a rock pool you you have to feed on things that you can deal with with just your mouth so most of the time species feed on other species in the ocean that are a lot smaller than them Mm -hmm. So the fact that we're of a, you know, we're smaller than a great white shark, but we're of a comparable size Mm -hmm. means we're not necessarily really in their their predator range. They, they, you know, a lot of the places the great white sharks are feeding on seal and sea lion pups, which are actually the size of a a small dog. They're Mm -hmm. not the size of a big human. So we're also kind of the wrong scale. And, you know, so it's, it's not really, but that said, I'll always defer to the knowledge of the local naturalists. And I, I, my attitude with any of the more dangerous, Animals in the ocean is you don't want to be being brave to take photos of them. You instead want to work with the experts, make sure you understand how the interaction is going to work, ask all your questions beforehand, so that when you get in the water, there's no need to be brave. You're Mm -hmm. simply following a uh, a well thought out process.
1: Yeah,
0: Um, I know it doesn't sound it's not the you know the Indiana Jones adventure style photography, but actually that's the way to be able to have safe encounters that are both safe for you and the animal. And to allow you to focus on your photography and create the really special images.
1: Yeah, yeah, and so I suppose even what, with the safety, which obviously you do, still seeing those guys coming towards you out of the murk must just always be a thrill.
0: Oh yeah, you know, and and you know, the great white shark is is one of those species that it looks exactly like it does in the movies, mm-hmm. and it really does. You know, you, you the first time you see one, it's like. It looks just like it does in the documentary. It looks Mm -hmm. just like it does it. You know, they really do look like that. And sometimes, you know, you go and see something in the wild and it looks different from how you maybe imagined it. If you've seen wildlife, for example, in in a zoo and you go on safari, the animals look shinier and and, 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 and their coats are in better condition. They don't look quite like the same species, whereas great white sharks look the same in film as they do, you know, when you see them. And the way they come out of the blue, you know, mm-hmm. so you're, you're looking and the sea's empty and then suddenly is that a shape? And then suddenly it's a great white shark. That experience is exactly as it is on film, except it's there in front of you. And I remember, you know, we, we lean out of the cages to photograph them. And I remember one time I was out of the cage photographing one, and the shark turned towards me and starts coming close to me. And I'm looking through my fisheye lens, so it looks a long way away, but it really isn't. And I'm shooting away, and I pull myself back inside the cage, and I catch my head on the the roof of the cage, and it Mm -hmm. flips my face mask strap off. So my face mask falls off. So I've got this great white shark bearing down on me. My face mask has come off. Um, I, I, I can see, you know, kind of now everything blurry. I'm used to being underwater without a face mask, so it doesn't that side of it doesn't panic me or worry me and I have an air supply so I just keep breathing but I've, I've gone back inside the cage my face mask is full of and I just sort of go down as a little ball and hide <laughs> behind the railings while I search for my, my, my thing still clutching mm-hmm. my camera of course
1: <laughs> I wanted to ask about something which I again thought would be a completely different approach for you but with coral reefs and mm-hmm. um, I saw one of the things on your site, is it a location, is it Missou? I'm not sure if yes. I'm seeing it right
0: Yes, Missou, yes
1: and I suppose is that more of a more like you're going looking to see what's there rather than having one specific thing, and like we've been talking about with the previous subjects.
0: Yes, and I would say that's true of a lot of natural history underwater photography. Is we tend to go to because there's so much diversity of life in the ocean. Mm-hmm. You know, if you go up onto you know up on you know up into the Cairngorms or something, you might go to the hilltops and see deer and and and. Um, and mountain hares and maybe in the forest you might get a capercaillie or something but it's very or you know or grouse or whatever you might you've got very specific subjects you're going for Mm -hmm. the coral reef environment is both incredibly diverse and incredibly densely populated Mm -hmm. so even if you just went in looking for one species you would see 50 on the way to it so as a result we tend to just because we're used to being overwhelmed by this diversity we go to destinations that are particularly rich Mm -hmm. with the intention that we can really shoot lots of different things Mm -hmm. and that makes it a lot of fun for a workshop because people can all go on a workshop and come back with totally different pictures from each other which i think i think works well um the very best places to go you know unsurprisingly are also often incredibly remote and and missoul is as remote a spot as, as I know in, in the ocean, and, you, know, we, we, you fly to Indonesia, you then fly on fairly rickety local planes three hours across Indonesia to very remote areas. Um, you turn up at a you know, small port in, the, in really in the middle of, of, of jungle covered islands. And then from there, you go six hours out into the sea to a tiny, tiny island. You know, right. half an hour from the port, you go past the very remote islands that they go to film the Birds of Paradise. And we go straight uh-huh. past those and we go okay. to a place that makes those feel like on the on the mainstream. Um and we go way out to to, to Missoula Eco Resort which is a, a resort right at the end of an island chain, at the end of an island at the end of the world. It really is you know, it really is incredibly remote. And what is I think amazing about that place is that the area was already is an incredible coral reef environment, but through ecotourism, they funded a properly patrolled and protected, marine protected area. And one of the things we're struggling with all across the world at the moment is protecting the ocean properly. And the first stage to that is, is designating areas as protected areas, but then they actually need to be properly enforced. And that's what we're kind of struggling with, you know, certainly in the Western world at, at the moment, but what they've done here is through ecotourism is they're pr- properly protecting and patrolling this area of the ocean. And the effect on the marine life has just been staggering. When mm-hmm. I first went there, you, you know, which was um, was 15 years ago now, I didn't see a shark on, on the whole trip. You mm-hmm. go back there now and within 15 years, the, the shark numbers are, you know, every dive you see sharks. The mantas mm-hmm. there, I think there's eight or nine times as many manta rays as there was 10, 15 years ago. Wow. The reefs... Are packed with fish because no one's fishing there. It is incredible how resilient and how the ocean can bounce back when it's properly protected. Mm-hmm. And it's a lesson that we should be taking on board across all the oceans because actually that's what our oceans need. And it's the same around our own coast. If we properly protected parts of the ocean, we protected them from destructive activities by people, it would allow the oceans to flourish and it would also mean that the the activities that we need to do like like fishing and and other things in the ocean um in the surrounding areas would actually be all the more rich um and mm-hmm. it just needs that step change in the way we manage things and it would be miles better for the wildlife and it would be miles better for us as well um and missoula is a place that just totally convinces you of that and um it's yeah so that for me it's it's just a remarkable place to visit and it is color 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 It's life, life, life. You know, if you go to a a rainforest, people go, oh, rainforest, it's diverse. You walk around a rainforest and you just see green for hours. On a coral reef, you put your head underwater and there's movement and colour and diversity Mm -hmm. of shape and form and types of animals everywhere you look for the whole time you're there. And they're not scared of you. They're all in your face the whole time. And it is, as a wildlife experience... For me it's it's the ultimate wildlife experience you can have on the planet. It's not, mm-hmm. you know, is it better than, you know, you know, you can go on a game drive in, you know, in the the best parks in Africa and you can have a quiet morning. On a coral reef there is wildlife to see all the time. Yeah. And then on top of that you get these incredible A-list animals turning up with regularity in mm-hmm. the parts of the ocean that that are, you know, are safe and far away from human activity and properly protected. And yeah, Misool is the absolute epitome of that. So
1: when you go to a coral reef like that, life everywhere, so many things to look at. Where do you start? Where, where, what's, how do you even find a starting point with that?
0: Well, I think that for me, it starts again with trying to promote that emotional reaction. I, and I think as, a, as a, when you're dealing with natural history subjects, you as a photographer want your emotions to to drive your photography. So underwater photography is a very technical discipline. You have to you know use equipment in very specific ways to be able to take pictures through when even when it's at its clearest, water is incredibly impenetrable to light, mm-hmm. and as photographers that's our currency is light. So we always need to be aware of our technical constraints, but it makes underwater photographers can fall into the trap of becoming very technical photographers without their pictures, having soul, having, you know, having gesture, having feeling. And so I like to let my emotional reaction to that environment, you know, really drive my photography. Right. What is it that is just knocking my stock socks off? What is okay. it that I really want to say to, to, to my, to my audience about, about this place. And in a place like Missoul it's just this explosion of life and color. Now, the challenge photographically then is that explosions of light, of colour and movement are usually quite messy and messy pictures aren't necessarily that, that attractive. So you're often then tempering that in with photographic decisions to allow this story to play out in an image that the viewer can still connect, co- connect to. And, and I guess like a landscape photographer, you know, spending, you know, a week in the field, you, and, you know, you're, you're spending your whole time looking in amazing scenery, but you're crafting images from it. So you're finding areas that allow you to tell that emotional story in a a still picture. Mm -hmm. And that involves, you know, the the, the intricacies of the technique, the intricacies of of, of vision, the intricacies of of trying to, to weave all that together in a particular place. So, for example, to get some specific stuff for anyone who's interested, we shoot a lot with fisheye lenses, fisheye lenses. The, the central area of the image tends to dominate compositionally, so we need to give the lens the viewer something in that central area for them to latch onto, otherwise the whole picture can feel like background mm-hmm. um, we 're also limited in underwater photography that because we need to use flash in our pictures, um, we need to have a foreground subject that 's really going to to begin to tell the story, and then we need to 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 put into that picture background elements that can work technically in underwater photography terms and don't just end up as a kind of a green blue mush mm-hmm. they actually have some impact and start to pull out so there's quite a lot of technical considerations to go into it but through all of that I'm always reminding myself you know what is it that's really exciting me about about this area this scene mm-hmm. i think the other part of underwater photography is we tell that story across a whole range of sizes yeah. you know from the big landscape scenic shots all the way down to microscopic animals, and for example, in Musul, it, it's an incredible place for pygmy seahorses, which are a species or it's a group of, of species, seahorses that are absolutely tiny. They, you know, they are a centimeter fully stretched out, mm-hmm. um, and where, and they live disguised, living in sea fans. So a sea fan is, is like a, a fan. It's an animal that filters water from the, the filters particles from the water and grows into a fan shape to, to do so. And the pygmy seahorses live in the little gaps between the branches and they are coloured the same as the sea fans, So they're incredibly adapted to their habitat, incredibly secretive, um, but just the most remarkable species. And on the same, you know, dive, the same location that you are shooting these, you know, you know, adrenaline pumping, you know, coral reef on steroid scenic pictures, you're also getting out super high magnification lens and telling the story of a tiny inhabitant that lives in that environment and then trying to tell stories on every level in between because mm-hmm. i think with an environment like that you know it's not going to be captured in a single image it's, it's about building a portfolio to tell that story
1: i need to ask you on behalf of my daughter she's five she really is into titanic she loves it and she loves A little fishing. deep for me, that one, but yeah. But he, she was asking me, how many shipwrecks have you been to?
0: Um, so lots and lots. And for me, shipwrecks are a really interesting area of underwater photography because they're a totally different challenge from wildlife. Um, so I've been to, to shipwrecks all around the world. And in my early days of underwater photography, I used to resent going to sea shipwrecks and I would generally just put a lens on so I could shoot wildlife there because that was my, my passion. Mm-hmm. But over time, I realized how fascinating they are on so many levels. You know, there's there's, there's tragedy associated with them. There's human story, there's human history. Um, a wreck that I photograph a great deal in the in, in Egypt is a, a British um, Second World War um, transport ship that was taking military supplies to to North Africa and it's you know it's like an underwater museum it's full of over more than 100 military motorbikes more than 60 trucks and lorries and you can dive through these holes and see all these vehicles and they are not easy to photograph because they're in a a murky silty environment and you're poking around through these the subjects trying to figure out what they are and find angles that make them photographically yeah. accessible and you can technically pull them off. So that aspect is, I think, really, really interesting. And you have the chance to to tell very different stories from natural history stories. Um, but yeah, all around the world, there are wrecks. I think we're, because we're kind of a, a it's now just coming to being a little, the Second World War is a little bit long ago. So a lot of ships were sunk during the Second World War. Mm-hmm. And those Second World War wrecks are, you know, have been over the last sort of, um, after they have been underwater for about 30 years, um, they had about sort of 50 years before the metal had begun to rust too much when the marine life really coated them and they were incredible to dive. A lot of them now are coming to the end of that where, you know, they're beginning to rust to the point that they're beginning to disintegrate and they're not as exciting to dive as perhaps mm. they were a little while ago. But it, it very much depends on how well they were made and how they were sunk and where they where they where they ended up. Um, but it, it, there are a lot of really fascinating wrecks and it's uh, something that you can experience all around the world. And it's one thing that sort of really struck me and reminds you how much of a global conflict the Second World War was is the fact that, you know, I've dived Second World War wrecks from northern Norway right down to the South Pacific. And, you know, it it really reminds you, goodness me, you know, these huge ships full of, you know, really large numbers of people, you know, were sunk all around the world. And it's, it's, you know, they are real monuments to Mm. all of that. They also, you know, from a photography point of view, they're a lot of fun to shoot because just because something can't move doesn't make it easy to shoot. And I think you have the chance to play around with really interesting techniques in those environments.
1: Yeah, it looks, to, to me, like the first thing I think of, it, it just looks kind of eerie and spooky and, you know, approaching it, mm-hmm. would, would you'd be approaching it with some trepidation. Um, and then when I look at the, the photography, um you know, the way that you're using lighting. I was wondering if you have another uh, diver with you who's directing the light from another location or can you leave a light down somewhere? I don't I understand how that works.
0: Yeah, so to generally um, I, I do most of those shots working on, on my own. Um, I think that's more just of a, of a practical thing. I think if, if my photography was lucrative enough that i could have assistance doing that sort of thing it would be fantastic <laughs> but um sadly the the, the economies of, of of being an underwater photographer yeah. mean that i'm generally doing the be, being my own lighting assistant i think also there's so much of the creativity comes from the lighting in those shots that it, it it's something that as a photographer you really want control of because that's where you're pouring in your creative juices and, and making mm. the image really yours. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I've spent a lot of time developing gear and gizmos to be able to to make those types of shots um, in those environments. Um, by And the challenge you have as an underwater photographer is that this, you need to have stuff that's reliable and works and it's practical, but is also not so big that you can't carry it around because mm. ultimately you've got to carry everything with you and it's mm. weight's not the issue but you can't go inside a wreck with you know with stuff hanging off you like a christmas tree you're not going to yeah. be able to squeeze inside the wreck so there are limitations on those shots but that's what makes it fun and i think that's what leaves you with a uh, you know with pictures that are not easy to be to be emulated people you know so they're they're eye catching imagery and they're also you know real moments in time because the effort gone into them is not easy to repeat
1: so is that the kind of thing you could go down there with something quite specific in mind and Try and put it together.
0: Yes, yeah, and those you know those those wrecks—they're not moving. Mm-hmm. You know, you learn over time how the light will be because you know shipwrecks don't move, but the sun moves. So, mm-hmm. certain aspects of shipwrecks take the take the sun, take light, are illuminated inside by shafts of light.
1: Mm-hmm. You know.
0: At different times of the day and in different conditions with the tide and so you sort of build up that knowledge over time and you okay. know you quite quickly on the different wrecks around the world know oh this is a wreck that's great to dive in the morning this one's great in midday this one's great in the evening actually i like to dive this wreck at three times in the day because i love how the light moves around it mm-hmm. and and so yeah so that's kind of a big part of it as you go deeper the time of day becomes less important because mm-hmm. when you're shallow in the ocean, there's much more of a direction to the to the natural, the ambient light. Mm-hmm. When you go deeper, the murkiness of the water kind of takes that direction out of it, and the water is just like you know. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's like if you have a light bulb on in the room and you haven't got a shade on it, or you put kind of a big, soft, round, you know, box on it. So it that's the difference of going deeper. Really, mm-hmm. you, you lose that direction, you lose the strength of the shadows. Um, and actually, for a lot of the wrecks, the shallower they are the more interesting they are in terms of how they take the light and the deeper they are usually the better condition they are and the better the artifacts so sometimes you want to go deep sometimes you want to stay shallow
1: this season the gear round is sponsored by the good people at mpb where you can buy sell and trade camera gear um okay so what's your go-to camera and lens combination for underwater photography
0: So I have two main cameras at the moment, but the one I use the most is a Nikon D850. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm still in the SLR world rather than switching over to mirrorless. I also have a Nikon D5, which um, is probably my second camera at the moment. Um, And I use a whole variety of lenses with that. So I have a lot of, you know, but underwater lenses generally fall into wide-angle lenses, and by that I mean ultra-wide-angle lenses, and macro lenses, close-focusing macro lenses. But because we have to take all our pictures from the same distance, usually touching distance, we want a variety of optics to give us a variety of picture areas. So we can use some zoom lenses, but ultimately we're we're tending to optimise for particular shots on particular underwater excursions, whether it's snorkelling or diving, and then looking for subjects that suit that particular lens and if we find something else it's better to come back another time another day with the right lens than try and force something with the wrong lens so because we obviously can't open our camera and change lenses (laughs) underwater just to (laughs) anyone's confused about
1: that (laughs) so yeah okay and so i was wondering what's the 850 giving you over the d5 is it the resolution
0: Yes, so um, in the previous generation, and the reason I own a D5 is that in the previous generation, when the, the D4 and the D800 were announced, i Nikon guy, um, I shot them both back to back um, on a trip and concluded to myself that for my needs, the D4 was perfect and the D800, I didn't really need the resolution and I actually preferred the D4 files. Mm-hmm. So when the D5 was announced, I just thought, oh, it's going to be more of the same. I'm going to buy a D5 and I don't even need to test the other camera because I don't really need the resolution for what I do. I'm you know, more of a, a stock editorial photographer than doing fine art or big, big prints. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think underwater pictures shot really well, tend to print really big, irrespective of the resolution of the camera and underwater pictures shot badly with a high resolution camera don't print well. Okay. So it was, um, I was very happy with the resolution. However, The first workshop that I ran that someone bought a D850 on the trip, it occurred to me almost instantly that the D850 files were better than the D5 files in terms of their adjustability, their suitability for underwater subjects, which really surprised me because it was the opposite of what I found with the D800. Hmm. And so at that point, I realized that I wanted to shoot a D850 um, as well. The other reason, motivation behind it, is that the camera world seems to show no sign of stopping the march to ever more high resolution files mm-hmm. and i'm also aware of the future proofing of my own work in that you know you can only put so many pixels on a, on a piece of paper particularly in a magazine mm-hmm. however i do con- i'm concerned that if clients get so used to everyone always sending them 50 megapixel files if you in 15 years time turn around and say here's my 20 megapixel file they might go oh no this is not usable even though it is and I felt that the D850 because the nature of my work takes me all around the world and there are destinations that maybe I only visit once every 10 years and I want my stock of that destination to be as valuable at the end of the 10 years as it is at the beginning and so I felt the D850 gives me a little bit of future proofing from the fickle nature of the market now there's no There's no real, I've never had, ever had anyone had any issue with any picture I've taken. And I still have pictures from, you know, six megapixel digital cameras, which at the time everyone told me I was wasting my time with and I should be shooting films still. They still get published all the time. So Mm -hmm. I have no, you know, there's no, I've never come against this, but I just also felt it was a a good way to go. Um, But I'm less concerned, you know, as underwater photographers, the camera is one of the, the least important parts of the gear. It's actually the lenses we use that allow that camera to, to work properly underwater. The lighting we use and, and the housing that allows you to access that camera properly. Those are the really key components of my gear.
1: Okay. And so with the housing, what kind of housing do you use?
0: So I use housings from a, a small company in Austria called Subal who make housing specifically for, for each camera. And they have a, an engineering and design philosophy that I love. Their, their stuff is not particularly flashy looking, but it's super, super strong, um, super reliable, and it's got really, really great ergonomics. Mm. And I know that I've got photos with my gear that people with maybe less ergonomic gear will have missed. Mm -hmm. and i'm also like like any system i'm invested into that system so i have all the the adapters and, and things to make it work with all the different lenses that i want to use and and actually as underwater photographers we use a lot of lenses so although i was saying we kind of use wide angle and macro there's probably four different macro lenses that i use and i use those also with a lot of you know accessories that i can screw onto them underwater and i also have I think five or six different wide angle lenses that I'm using regularly just to give me different perspectives, different zoom ranges, different looks to my pictures. So um, although underwater photography seems quite simple and it is, you know, particularly when you're trying to expand your, your, your the look of your work, mm-hmm. you know, it's good to work a variety of, of different focal lengths.
1: With the housing, I think I, when you said ergonomics, it just hit me. I was like, well, oh, that's got to be the absolute key for the whole thing for the housing you have to be able to do the settings adjustments that you need to do easily, and presumably you've got gloves on when you're diving, right?
0: It, it depends on the temperature. So actually, yeah, it's important that the housing can work. You know, when it's really cold, like you know, when when we're allowed back in the water um, here in England next week, um, you know, the water's going to be you know maybe eight nine degrees, and eight eight nine degree in water after half an hour, your hands are, are pretty much numb. So yeah. you need a housing that can work with that. But then when I'm diving in the tropics. You know, I can dive in my swimming trunks and I'm never cold. Mm -hmm. And in those conditions, you know, I'm never going to wear gloves. I've got completely different dexterity levels. So you need a housing that's designed for both. Mm -hmm. Um, And it is really important. I have to say, though, that it's an area that the housing manufacturers, not just my particular one, but all of them have put a lot of work into over the last, you know, 10 years. 10 years ago, it was about here's a waterproof box that you can just about use your house camera through. Mm-hmm. Now, I would say that there's features on my housing that have better ergonomics than the camera body.
1: You know, mm-hmm. we use
0: ISO a lot, and most of the housings now, rather than it being a button you have to press, they actually have a, a specialist lever that just falls falls naturally underneath your thumb. Again, okay. for reviewing images, we have a, a nice lever that's just under your thumb. You don't have to go and find a button on the back of the camera. So they can prioritize the controls that we need to be really at your fingertips. You know, I have my my D5. If I pull back with both my top two fingers, that takes me a picture without flash. If I pull back with just one finger, it takes me a picture with flash. So there's lots of neat little ergonomic fixes that are on the housings that actually enhance the photographic material. And when I teach photography... if I, 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 when I, when I talk to, oh, you need to close the aperture for that shot. I always move my hand like that because that's how you close an aperture right. on the gear on the housing. And <laughs> yeah. the shutter speed, it, um, it, it, it's a dial on the back. So that speeds up my, that slows down my shutter speed, that speeds it up. And I just mm. make those, you know, I move those when I talk. Everyone always jokes. I can see you're an underwater photographer because you, <laughs> you close your aperture like that and you open it like this and, you, <laughs> and that's the, the control of the housing. So I'm used to using my camera in a housing, not out of it.
1: Yeah, that's so great that they've gone to the care to do that, though. And it makes it can make it work for you rather than having it work against you. It must make it so much easier. Um, I was curious to ask about filters as well. I know you've got uh, uh, magic filters, which I think you invented. Mm. Am I right?
0: Yes, yeah, a long time ago now. Yeah, 15 years ago, yeah.
1: So what's, what's the role for filters in underwater photography?
0: So I probably should have said this earlier on, but the reason we need to use flash underwater is that um, light doesn't just become attenuated as it goes down and gets darker very quickly underwater. It's also the, the different wavelengths of light get absorbed at very different rates. So mm-hmm. in clear blue water, you run out of red light. You lose 75% of red light by the time you get to the depth of your feet. Mm-hmm. So if you take a picture without flash, it very quickly becomes a monochromatic blue. Mm-hmm. Um, the solution to that we usually do as underwater photographers is we take flash guns down with us to restore the white light. It, you know, it's, it's like a fill flash, but we're filling not just with detail, but also with colour. Um, mm-hmm. A filter is an alternative way of correcting that colour balance. So the camera's white balance adjustment can do some of that, but we're talking about a much bigger colour cast than the cameras are usually tuned to deal mm-hmm. with. So we add a filter to the camera that does 80% of the work and then the white balance can do the fine tuning. And what was different about the filter I invented, it was very much invented for digital cameras. So before then, people had made filters that completely corrected for seawater. But these could only work at one depth because you right. could correct the seawater at, at five meters depth or you could correct for seawater at 10 meters depth, depth. What I realized with the magic filter is that having tried the filters that existed and realized that they were impractical, was that I made a filter that did 80% of the work but didn't restrict you from using it either right at the surface all the way down to about 15 metres because it did the work that the camera couldn't do and left the camera to do the work it could do. And so that filter allows you to shoot in certain places very nicely without flash. Now, a a lot of the time, um, I would say I only use it for a small proportion of my photography because it's particularly suited for certain subject matter. And actually that kick of flash gives a lot to a lot of photos. So I would say I'd still take probably 90% of my photos with flash underwater. But when there are certain situations, big schools of fish, you know, big coral landscapes, big shipwrecks, these are really well suited to filter photography. And it's really enhanced my portfolio. And Mm -hmm. I would never have, I just developed it for myself. Um, And I had no, I didn't have, you know, particularly strong um, commercial ideas at that time. But a friend of mine who I, was helping me develop it, um, Peter Rowland's, um, I actually gave, I came up with two formulas and I said, well, I'm going to test this one and you test the other one. And the one I gave him to test actually turned out to be better than the one I thought was going to be best. Um, Mm. And after we did that, he suggested that we we made it commercially available and I was like, oh, I was just going to, you know, publish what I did and let people make it for themselves. And he was like, no, we should get this made and we could sell it to people. So that's where the the business side of it came from. And I'm really Mm. glad he did that because it although it's never made us lots of money it provided a nice trickle of money at a time in my photographic career where a trickle of regular money each month was more valuable than a big lump sum you know every 6 months mm-hmm. so yeah it was a it turned out to be a very fortuitous thing and it was something i developed purely for me to be able to take pictures that i knew other photographers couldn't and mm-hmm. it was about giving my portfolio an edge and in mm-hmm. the end we, we we turned it the way, and it was it was quite an interesting lesson for professional photography. In that, you know, the traditional view of a professional photography is you take a great photo, and then you you sell that photo through whichever means to make an income. And what the Magic Filters experience taught me was that yes, I took a great photo that people wanted to emulate, but rather than cash in on the photo, I cashed in on the, the technique, the education, the the equipment side of it, and. That was a sort of, you know, quite a big sort of light bulb moment in terms of how to forge the financial side of the career in that, yeah, the you know, as a photographer you still make money from your photos, but it's not always just, oh, give it to the stock agent, give it to the magazine and get your money. There are other ways that a great photo can earn you money and and that has has been really valuable for a professional career.
1: And I just wanted to touch on the flashes that you use. Is there a particular brand that you, you swear by or?
0: Um so these days I use my flash guns are from two brands one is SeaCam and one is Retra and Retra is a company that is relatively new on the scene but they're really pushing the technology forward in underwater flash guns they've introduced high speed flash sync um so they're flash they've found flash tubes that can do you know do high-speed flash sync they've put a lot of effort into creating really really good quality of light and produce easy to use accessories that allow us to change that quality of light underwater so you know you can take a couple of accessories down with you clip them on turn them on so we've got everything from beam restrictors which can help you not light up the particles in in dirty water to different colored um diffusion um um filters so that you can warm or cool the light to the the level you want to only subtly but it makes a big difference to the look of the pictures they've Mm -hmm. even got like optical snoots so rather than just restricting it with a mechanical snoot they've actually got lenses in them so you can get a really strong pinpoint of light Mm -hmm. allowing you to to photograph even in bright sunny tropical conditions photograph a small subject you know in a spotlight if you want to Um, Which is also valuable. So, yeah, uh, that's a really interesting area in underwater photography. And I think that for me has been the big change in the last 10 years is the gear was worked 10 years ago. But over this last 10 years, the housings, the optics and the lighting has all been refined to give us a capability that we didn't have before and that's really exciting And it also means it's why the photos we take today continue to be so much you know, more polished so much more exciting so much more interesting than what we were able to do a decade ago
1: yeah that's it's a whole new world for me it's really interesting to hear that um let me ask you is there anything in your bag that you just never use
0: <laughs> it depends if my wife is going to listen to this or not um, actually she she loves photography um, as a hobby. And so she's always quite and she, she particularly likes photographing orchids and mus- wild orchids and mushrooms when we're out and about in the, in the countryside. So anything that's a macro lens is fine by her. I can buy as many of those as I want. Um, yeah, there's always a few things that, that aren't getting as much use. There's kind of some much loved old lenses that have now been superseded. And we've been through such good times together that I can't can't face getting rid of them too much. Mm. I try and operate a one in one out policy. Um, and it's, it's, it's also, you know, why I, I know MPB because, you know, it's a place where I've, I've sent stuff. Um, and that way it keeps things reasonable, but every now and again, I'll be in a hurry and I'm just like, oh I'd like to try that. And I can't be bothered to find something to send in as, as a one in mm. one out. Yeah. Um, which I think is, is just, is, that's just really from a practical point of view of, of not ending up with a house full of, of so much gear, um, to try. But it's yeah it's um, yeah so but no most things get used and I you know everything from old vintage lenses right the way through to to the latest underwater designed optics, Um, Mm -hmm. and and you know we use some quite unusual things underwater. For example, one of my main fisheye lenses is back in the '90s, Nikon made a film SLR called the Nikon Nikonos RS that could go underwater, and Mm -hmm. for that lens they designed a fisheye lens that was designed specifically to work in water water has a different refractive interest in, in index to air so if you put a you know a glass window in front of any land lens it will work underwater but that glass that interface creates optical issues you can design a lens to work in water but it won't work in air and nikon did this with with, with their fisheye lens for their nikonos rs camera mm-hmm. that cat that lens doesn't work on a modern slr but you can reprogram it so it will and actually i use one of those for a lot of my wide angle because it's got it's got fantastic optical performance even though it's quite an old lens um Mm. so it's a really 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 good quality um optic and it's designed to be used underwater so yeah so that's you know so there's some quite strange things out there that we use
1: Hmm. well ironically the thing that i've got in my bag that i'm never using is a fisheye lens haven't used it for years And uh, I think most of us have something that we're not using. Mm. So why not trade it in to MPB for something you will use Uh, MPB buys and sells and trades thousands of items each week and everything comes with a six month warranty. So I'll put a link in the show notes where you can get a quote for selling your unused kit to MPB and I'll make a link to all of the gear Alex mentioned. So thanks to the good people at MPB for sponsoring the gear round. Let's go on to double exposure, so this is where I'm going to ask you about a particular shot and then maybe there's a particular shot or moment from your career or for your photography journey that's really memorable that you could share about as well. So I picked out a few shots um, that I, I was going to ask you about but I think I've settled on one. It's called um, Anemone Fish Over Tentacles, Indonesia. So you've got this top-down view I think of a, a fish And all these tentacles and this, you used the word earlier yourself, gesture, something I'm always looking for in in my photography, gesture. The picture has a beautiful movement to it. Um, Can you, do you know the one I'm talking about? Yes, yes. Can you tell me if there's a story behind that one?
0: I took that in a, in a place called Lembe Strait, which is in Sulawesi in central Indonesia, a very remote area. And it's a place that underwater photographers go to because this narrow strait of water is protected from the open ocean, but has strong, strong currents. So it's full of rich life. It's quite murky water, so it doesn't have nice coral reefs. The seabed is often black sand, but there are amazing animals live there. The topography looks quite like diving in a sea lock, actually. But Mm -hmm. living there, there are seahorses and amazing octopus and hairy frogfish and all sorts of weird animals live there. And everyone goes there to see these amazing weird animals. And anemone fish are one of the more common coral reef inhabitants. And no one goes to this place to photograph anemone fish but on this particular dive, I just saw this in Henry Fish and I just saw this incredible image. And it was a case of, you know, you go in the water with a plan and my plan was not to photograph an Henry Fish. It was to Mm -hmm. see all these weird animals. But I just saw this opportunity and, and was drawn to it. And I always tell my workshop groups when we go there that my most successful picture from this place that we've come to to see all these rare animals is an anemone fish that you know mm-hmm. you've all seen a million times but you know so don't you know be aware as an underwater photographer keep your mind open for the, the photographic opportunities so that's yeah. what 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 drew me to this picture it is also the picture one of the pictures i was referring to before in that it was taken with a, a six megapixel nikon D100 a long time right. ago and the picture is still regularly used it's still printed you know full page in magazines on covers and things like that and it it's a reminder that you know although we get all obsessed about latest and greatest camera equipment you know strong images even taken on not the best gear you know still appeal it's always all about the image so although I was saying mm. earlier I shoot a D850 currently because I, I want that future proofing this picture despite being quite old is not aged at all in terms of its appeal to the market
1: yeah oh, it's totally fantastic and um the, the color i'm colorblind but to me the colors looking really vibrant so i don't know if i'm not seeing it maybe it's even oh they're definitely vibrant to me. yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's so amazing and the the movement in the fish i was thinking if that fish was straight presumably you fired off a few um just k- 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 like this but if that fish is straight i don't think it works the picture works as well do you know mm. what i mean
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. And I I think, you know, we, um, you know, that sinuous movement is so typical of the underwater world and actually really difficult to capture. It's something Mm. I'm always, you know, going on to to people about is, you know, how how visually appealing those curves are in pictures and actually how hard they are to find. And it's particularly because, you know, a lot of fish, it's actually need that bottom up or top down view to see that movement as they swim. And usually as photographers, we try and get down to eye level and get eye contact with them. And it's a reminder of how lucky we are as underwater photographers that we have this ability to shoot subjects from this diversity of angles yeah. because we're free to move in three dimensions just like a drone. And I think yeah. this is a, you know, is a great example of, of, of that freedom allowing you to, to express yourself. And I, I think it was also a picture that was possible because anemone an fish are one of the few subjects, you know, along with sharks, um, that everyone, and maybe seahorses, you know, that everyone in the street knows. Mm-hmm. And as a result, I have a little bit more flexibility as a photographer to not just have to shoot them the straight, obvious way. And I feel that I can be more interpretive in my photography with them and my audience will still get the shot. Yeah. Whereas, you know, if if I went that wacky with some fish that no one, you know, you know, the lesser spotted um, damselfish, you know, people will be like, oh, I don't understand what's going on there. Whereas I think mm-hmm. with the anemone fish, people know that story. So photographically, I have a bit more freedom to tell it in a more interesting way.
1: It's, it's a character. So is there, a, I don't know if there's a moment or a particular shot that just stands out for you. Anything you can uh, tell us about?
0: Um, I think pictures, I mean, I, as I said, I'm a, you know, sort of more stock editorial photographer. So I'm generally shooting a lot of work and it's always about what's next rather than what's gone on in the mm-hmm. past. I think the photos that have been sort of career defining or door opening, are really, um, you know, the ones that tend to have a resonance. Even if they're pictures that maybe you don't show that much anymore, or you don't feel they represent your work now, they are those landmarks in the career. And I would I would say that um, the first photo that I had awarded in the, the Wildlife Photographer of the Year, which won the, the animal po- or the portraits category back in 2005, um, so a long time ago now, mm-hmm. um, that picture as a door opener it's actually in that in the, you were teasing me earlier about the photos with, with royalty, but it's the it's photos in the background of the picture of me and the queen. Um, mm. And I think that that is, you know, that was an incredible image in that for a long time it existed just as my shot on my hard drive that, you know, I liked and a few of my friends thought was great and i you know threw it in i entered it into the wildlife photographer competition i'd never i'd entered the competition plenty of times before right from when i was a student at university um and i'd always you know hoped to do well but never really expected it and then suddenly i was a winner in this competition and then you know competitions like that are such a springboard for you you know yeah. within you know the day the competition announced the picture was you know in all the newspapers and you know the first time that happens to you as a photographer where a picture goes really really mainstream we, we'd call it viral these days or perhaps we wouldn't use that word anymore but um it, you know it, it, they go everywhere and you know you, the first time that happens to you, is, it's kind of everyone who's known you through your life sees it and you just get this barrage of, of contact and communication and then also because publishers magazines everyone is always looking for the the new talent yeah. and you know it was ridiculous period you know i would get you know literally 30 40 emails a day for about three weeks after that of just wow. would you join this agency i think the world has changed a bit as well since then in that you know social media hadn't really taken off at that time it was uh, you know and, and so it was harder maybe for newer photographers to be discovered in other ways and but you know i've just got you know just this track load of would you join our agency we'd really love to feature you in this magazine would you do this would you do that and it was incredibly valuable so and you know even led up to me you know presenting the um, the collection to the Queen and and things like that Mm -hmm. and it was yeah just yeah really really real life-changing photo and just the difference you know it's the same picture on my hard drive now but it was you know maybe if I hadn't entered it it would never have been seen and the nature of competitions are so fickle that you could enter the same picture the next year, and one judge wouldn't go for it, and you wouldn't be—it would be an also ran.
1: Yeah.
0: And so, just all that sort of fortune coming together, I think is is something that you know, definitely one of those kind of sliding doors moments of it could yeah. have easily have not happened, but it changed so many things in my life. So that picture is always really special.
1: Yeah, is it the? I don't have the picture of the Queen up in front of me. Is it the Angry Gang of Fish? Yeah, Thank it's
0: you. the angry fish. Um, and it's not, they're not angry at all. And it's, it's one of the keys <laughs> to fish photography is, you know, you're dealing with a subject that people maybe don't have strong emotional connections with. Yeah. And so as a photographer, you're trying all the tricks you can to generate that emotional connection with the subject matter. And with a fish, when you capture an angle that allows people to project some emotion, to project mm-hmm. some personality onto your subject, your fish becomes more than just being a scaly, slimy fish. It, you know, it becomes a character, an individual that people can connect with. And mm-hmm. yeah, to, yeah it's, um, I'm always very proud to do well in, in, in those sort of mainstream photographic competitions without having to go down the A-list subject route you know it's yeah. great when you win with sharks and i've won the wildlife photographer with with whale sharks and you know all, all sorts of big things as well but i i love the fact that you know a normal fish can win if you can get it right
1: yeah it's it's it it's just like the the fish in the foreground is it looks amazing but then when you see you, you see that first obviously and then later you see the ones in the background and it just adds so much um mm-hmm. it sort of adds a lot of humor to it i think you think well these guys don't look too happy um
0: and that was a, I mean, a, bit, a point I made earlier was that, you know, I think that you strive as a photographer to, to to keep pushing those boundaries. And that was a picture that used a new technique that I was working on at the time, um, which I, I later, you know, more recently called underwater telephoto of using a very unusual flash setup and everything with the flash guns way in front of the camera to cut down the light, light path to the to the subject to allow me to shoot with a longer lens underwater. And no one had ever tried that technique before. And there's no doubt that the judges of the competition had no idea how that picture was taken. Mm -hmm. But they reacted to the novelty of it. And if I look through, particularly just in the wildlife photographer, if I look through a number of the pictures that I've had awarded in that competition, they've all had some sort of innovation in them Mm
1: -hmm. of me
0: trying to push a boundary back. And there's definitely a lesson in that. And in every single case is the judge would not have been aware of that innovation at Mm -hmm. all, but they've reacted to the freshness of the image. And it's why I think it's so important to be pushing those boundaries back because people, even if they can't put their finger on it, they react to the fact that something is, is fresh and new and different. And so it's something that, you know, I think is really critical to be constantly trying to innovate in your photography because it's when you break that new ground is actually when people, you know, uh, you know, I've got too many examples a too high a proportion of my, you know, most kind of viral kind of, you know, celebrated, well-known shots have been when I've tried to do something a little bit fresh, not reinvent the wheel, but mm-hmm. just that little tweak to just try and do something people haven't done before. And when you get something right in that way, you create not only an eye-catching image, but an eye-catching image that's got that intangible feeling of freshness, which I think really appeals in, in those markets and opens the doors.
1: Mm. i think it's amazing advice actually i'll put links to all those images in the show notes okay so over time now <laughs> and uh, uh let's do the quick fire round let's do it quick okay this is motor yep. drive when wide angle or telephoto a wide angle okay coffee or tea
0: um neither for me thanks i don't like hot drinks
1: okay head or heart
0: heart because as an underwater photographer i think head rules too much of the time because of the technical constraints
1: Mm -hmm. okay this is the the big one finding nemo or titanic
0: oh i'm a marine life guy i do enjoy my wrecks but yeah it's got to be the marine life
1: it's new okay um okay i don't know how this applies to what you do but expensive lens cloth or the corner of your shirt
0: um i'd like to be expensive lens cloth but it's nearly always my t-shirt
1: okay so um okay we don't have time to get into how you do that under the water but let's move on okay uh who's a photographer we should all follow
0: i'd say my favorite photographer who most people will know is jim Brandenburg. i think his vision and his use of light and his his ability to create those you know groundbreaking images that remain iconic after so many years in the wildlife photography world he's someone everyone should
1: follow okay i'll put that in the show notes Um, You've been, it looks like you go all over the world with your workshops and I'm really envious. It looks like a fantastic life you've got, you know, when there's not a pandemic on. But uh, is there a dream location that you'd still love to shoot?
0: Oh, hundreds and hundreds. But I try to make my dream location the one I'm going to next. Mm -hmm. There's no point, you know, be dreaming of swimming with blue whales in the Indian Ocean when I'm perhaps, you know, up shooting in, in the sea locks up in Scotland or something. I try to make the place I'm going to my dream location at that time. So um, I don't like to, to ask myself that question. I'd much rather be as enthusiastic and as passionate about what I'm shooting because I think that comes through in the images. If you're dreaming of great white sharks when you're supposed to be photographing sea slugs, you're not going to take great sea slug pictures. You've got yeah. to be at that moment the biggest fan of sea slugs there is. And I think you'll pour that love into your pictures, go that extra mile and create something special.
1: It's a great answer. OK, when do you feel at peace with the universe?
0: Oh, definitely underwater. There's many people around the world who are addicted to diving just for the sensation. Mm-hmm. The fact that I get to do it and do a creative endeavour while doing that and being weightless and being free and being surrounded by accepting, you know, underwater lights and incredible beauty. Um, and fascination, you know, which is so varied around the world in terms of underwater. You I know, mean, the underwater world is not the same everywhere. I mean, that that is yeah definitely the, the Zen spot, especially on the rare occasion that my wife's able to come with me too.
1: Alex, thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Hope you can get back out into the water this year. Looks like things are going in the right direction. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening. Follow Alex on Instagram, check out his website to find out more about his photography and his workshops. Links to everything we spoke about are in the show notes and if you liked this episode then check out my conversations with Howard Schatz from season two and Julian Terreros-Martin from season one. Thanks for your time, enjoy your photography and I'll see you out there.